This is John Shannon with Radio Free Galisteo, and today our guest is author-historian Eric J. Dolan, who has been widely praised for his best-selling maritime histories, including Leviathan and Black Flags, Blue Waters. We today are going to be talking with him about his new book, Rebels at Sea, Privateering in the American Revolution. So we're going to be talking about what many people probably initially think are pirates, but that's not the case, is it? <laughs> no. <laughs> the reason that people often associate privateering with piracy, and they call it legalized piracy, is that privateering goes way back to the 13th century, and many European powers use privateering. Technically, privateers are armed vessels that were outfitted by private individuals and given permission to attack enemy ships during times of war. The problem is, in the past, a lot of privateers that had these letters of mark, which is the formal legal document that the governor, that the government distributes to make you a privateer. The problem is in the 1500s, 1600s, early 1700s, a lot of quote unquote privateers were actually attacking ships, not of an enemy state. They weren't at war, but just attacking ships of another country and taking home the booty. The classic example from America's perspective is one that I talked about in Black Flag's Blue Waters, which is in the late 1600s during King William's War, England was at war with France. So England, who was well-versed in privateering, issued letters of mark. And a lot of the colonies issued letters of mark. And those vessels were supposed to go out and fight the French. But in the colonies, a grifting operation took place where colonial governors basically sold for 300 pounds a pop these letters of mark, the vessels that got them and the people on board those vessels, instead of going out and attacking the French, which they were supposed to do, they went around the Cape of, uh, Good, the Cape of Good Hope into the Indian Ocean and they attacked valuable Mughal ships transiting between India and the Red Sea ports of Jeddah and Mocha and plundering them and bringing the money back to the colonies where the colonists loved getting the money and the East Far Eastern goods and all this great stuff. The governors, again, got a kickback because each of these quote-unquote privateers, which were really pirates, they had to pay 100 pieces of eight, basically, per person just to enter back into port and not be prosecuted for piracy. So oh this is a really outrageous use of privateering. And there are other examples throughout history. But when you get to the American Revolution, which is a focus of rebels at sea, privateering in the American Revolution on the American side. They definitely were not pirates. They had these letters of mark. They only attacked British shipping or neutral ships that were carrying British munitions to the Royal Navy or the uh, Royal Army. And none of them had an incentive and none of them did veer into out-and-out piracy. So it, it, it's, a, it's a very different type of privateering during the American Revolution than what often took place earlier, but because it had such a bad reputation, it's sort of uh, the privateering in the American Revolution gets painted with that as well. So are you saying that these privateers did this purely out of patriotic zeal? Oh, no, absolutely not. In fact, nobody, <laughs> nobody who fought in the American Revolution did it purely out of patriotic zeal, because as privateers, when you capture a British prize, you bring it into port and it gets adjudicated. If it's a valid prize, the owners and investors in the privateer get 50% of the profits from selling the ship. 
and yeah. selling all the cargo on board and the privateersmen, the men who did the fighting on board, they get the other 50%. So there clearly was a profit uh, motive, but uh, the fa our, our founding fathers in the Continental Congress didn't think that the pursuit of patriotism and profits had to be mutually exclusive. And in fact, if you look at every branch of our government's activities against the British, the army, people were paid to join the army. You know, the, 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 the patriotic fervor that brought the first 20,000 militia out down to Boston and right around the Battle of Bunker Hill and after the battles of Lexington and Concord, their patriotic fervor actually rapidly diminished over time. <laughs> and the only way that the Continental Congress could maintain a fighting force is to offer them money and land. And mm. in many cases, they didn't come through with either. And a lot of soldiers just left. George Washington, who's a good assessor of human character, said you cannot wage a war based on civic virtue or Republican ideals alone. There has to be the profit motive involved. He understood that people are not going to simply fight because they're fighting for this noble cause. They also want some corner sort of remuneration. And then the Continental Navy, which was much smaller than the privateering fleet, but the Continental Navy, if you looked at the advertising placards and broadsheets that went out to get people to join naval ships, they sounded just like the kinds of things that privateers would say. They the uh, naval, uh, the sailors were paid a base salary. They also got a cut of the profits if they captured a British merchant ship. And sometimes they were even paid signing bonuses. So I don't argue that all privateersmen were motivated by patriotism at all. Some of them maybe only were in it for the profit. But I think that privateersmen were a reflection of the society at large. And they are—they were just as patriotic as their peers, both in the different military services and just the general population. I mean, the entire basis for the American Revolution was an argument over taxation and money, and we couldn't—we couldn't actually wage the war without money. Money is fundamentally important, and if the Continental Congress ever felt that privateering was not serving the revolutionary cause, and was not bolstering our Republican ideals while at the same time punishing Britain, they could have withdrawn all of the letters of Mark. They could have killed privateering, you know, in the cradle. They didn't. Mm -hmm. They never mm -hmm. seriously considered, they never considered at all putting a stop to privateering because they realized that it was an essential part of the overall war effort. Now, you've mentioned the, the privateers really outnumbered the Continental Navy. So obviously their role was very significant in in winning the war based on everything you just said no absolutely i mean they're about they're close to two thousand privateering vessels and on board those vessels there are probably 20 to thirty thousand. some estimates even go higher than that of privateersmen when you compare that to the continental navy the continental navy had 60 ships <laughs> and uh a much smaller contingent of men and uh, John Adams, who was a big fan of the Continental Navy and privateering, in 1981, he was looking back over the sorry history of our Continental Navy. And he said, thinking about the history of the Continental Navy, it, you know, brings on tears, made him want to cry. And so many of the Continental Navy vessels were either captured by the British, 
sunk, intentionally burned by Americans to keep them from falling into British hands, mm. that even though this is the our Navy's first hour, it wasn't their finest. And I'm not trying to disparage the Navy, given you know a well-functioning, well-funded government would have had a difficult time uh, creating a Navy out of whole cloth. The Continental Congress was not particularly well-functioning, was poorly funded, they couldn't levy taxes, so they had a gargantuan task in trying to develop a Navy in very short order. And actually, one of the problems they encountered, uh, most of the ships in the Continental Navy were already existing vessels that were repurposed or loaned to us by France. But they did build a small number of frigates. Hmm. And they had to build them so fast, they didn't have time to season the wood. So Oops. there were some problems when the ships went out to sea, they leaked a lot. So it really, that's the way you need to look at privateering. Would we have preferred to have a powerful Navy that could go toe to toe with the Royal Navy during the American Revolution? Absolutely. That was not an option. And in the absence of that, privateering was the best available course that we had to fight against the British on the ocean. So it was our best alternative, given a suite of maybe bad alternatives or less than ideal alternatives. Now, you'd think that um, the ships in the Continental Navy would have at least coordinated battles and or taking of other ships. Did the privateers, did they work together and in coordination with you know more than one ship? Or was it just sort of a bunch of one-offs whenever they had the opportunity? Remember, the Continental Navy, they didn't always act in fleets or little packs. Sometimes mm. they, were, they were individual actions. But privateers, for the most part, yes, they were acting individually. However, there are a number of cases I talk about in the book where a small group of privateers banded together to go after prey, to go after the British. But by and large, most of them were out there on their own, going to the locations in the Atlantic Ocean, in the Caribbean, you know, basically it was off the east coast of the United States, down in the Caribbean, off the west coast of Africa, where privateers captured a lot of British slaving ships, and then mm. in and around England and continental Europe. And that's where they would go, because that's where the most that's where they were most likely to find British merchant ships. Now, sometimes American privateers actually fought British naval ships. That was relatively rare, but they did capture a number of smaller frigates and, and naval ships. The same could be said of the Continental Navy. Most of the Continental Navy's captures were merchant ships, which is exactly what privateers were going out after. They did have some engagements with naval ships and uh, did capture a few of those. So uh, yeah, uh, privateers were pretty much lone actors, although there are a number of instances of them traveling in small packs. Tell us about one of the standout privateers that uh, that you learned about as you were doing this. Well, it, you know, it's funny. I this this book before I started working on this book, I didn't know a lot about privateering in the American Revolution, and that's sort of my uh, modus operandi for all of my books. I pick topics I don't know a lot about, so I stay engaged while I'm working on them for a year and a half or more. And none of these privateers man, that I talk about in the book are people that you would have heard of, or that I had heard of before. You know, one of the points of my book is that maritime histories, naval histories, histories of the American Revolution give short shrift to privateering for a mm. variety of reasons, I think. So all of the characters I uncovered during during the research are ones I had never 
heard of before. Some of the owners of privateers were famous Americans uh, that you may have heard of. But the guy that I start the book off with, uh, a guy named Jonathan Harridan, I think is a great example. He's out of Salem, Massachusetts. He started out his career in the Massachusetts Navy on a ship called the appropriately named ship called the Tyrannicide. Uh, he got into his dispute over pay. He left and he became a captain of the Pickering, which was a Salem privateer, which had 16 cannons on board. And he captured during his career, he captured quite a few British prizes, brought in hundreds of cannons that were on those British prizes and as many prisoners. But his most famous encounter is one, in fact, that where he didn't actually capture another ship, but he fought off a much more powerful ship. And this was in June of 1780. He was in the Pickering. He was going to Bilbao, Spain, because he was actually a letter of mark privateer. There are two types of privateers. There are straight privateers that just go out and attack British ships and have large uh, crews on board and don't engage in any commerce. And there were letter of mark privateers which were dual purpose. They would engage in commerce, but if they also saw a likely target, a British ship, they would engage them and maybe mm -hmm. capture a prize. So he was in this letter of mark privateer called the Pickering. He only had 38 men on board. There were 16 cannons and he was heading towards Bilbao, Spain. On the way, he captured a British merchant ship called the Golden Eagle. And then when he got within sight of Bilbao, a much larger ship, the Achilles, appeared on the scene and a couple of the men on board the pickering british prisoners knew about the achilles quite well they knew what her armament was and her her complement and they basically one of them told harridan you know that achilles is one of the largest vessels of its type coming out of britain it has 130 men on board and 43 cannons most of which were larger than the cannons that harridan had on board so this British guy expected Harridan to flee, which sometimes happened. If you're encountering a stronger foe, you flee. You don't fight. That's a smart thing. Well, Harridan said, I shan't run from her. And he didn't. Overnight, they, they didn't fight at night. They tended to avoid fighting at night. But so overnight, the two ships were uh, some distance apart. Harridan went to sleep and he said, wake me up if they come closer. The next morning he woke up, the Achilles was coming in closer. It recaptured the Golden Eagle that Harridan had captured before. And Harridan realized that he was at a major disadvantage. So he offered a financial incentive to some of the British prisoners who were on board. He said, if you join me, I'll give you a cut of the profits of our cruise. And 10 of them stepped forward. So he had another 10 men to man the cannons and fight. This is Radio Free Galisteo. Music and information from the Galisteo Basin. Radio Free Galisteo is listener supported. Go to www.radiofreegalisteo.com and click on our Patreon support button to become an active supporting member of Radio Free Galisteo. By this time, the people in Bilbao, Spain, which is a pretty big uh, town, port town, they had heard about this potential spectacle that's going to be taking place just offshore. And a thousand people came down to the beach to watch the Americans fight the much larger British ship. And so the Achilles comes forward 
and the fighting lasted for about two hours. And uh, at towards the end of it, Harridan decided to fill the cannons with bar shot, which is basically two cannonballs connected by an iron rod. All and when right. it comes out of the cannon, it spins wildly around, and it's very good at destroying masts, uh, rigging, and sails. And that did a lot of damage to the Achilles, and the captain of the Achilles realized that this fight is not going the way that I intended it to, and he took off. Harridan took off after him, but the Achilles, despite its injuries, was still a little too fast, got away. We don't know how many people were injured or killed on the Achilles, but on the Pickering, amazingly, only one man was killed. His head was sheared off by a cannonball, and Oof. eight men were seriously wounded. But when the Pickering comes into the port of Bilbao, word had already spread about this great American victory. And oh, by the way, he reclaimed the Golden Eagle from the Achilles. So he's coming in, and Harridan was treated like royalty. He was uh, feted and you know given grand dinners and... And he stayed in Bilbao for a couple of months, traded the goods he had on board. And then on the way back to Salem, he captured three more British merchant ships as prizes. And when he died in 1803 of tuberculosis, the Salem Gazette basically said that he's one of our he's one of the greatest maritime heroes of the American Revolution. And uh, one of his his crewmen actually referred to him as the perfect hero because he was very in, in all the battles that I was able to get information about, it appears that Harridan was stoic. I mean, he, he never got ruffled. He was very calm. Uh, when he was fighting the Achilles, one of the, one of the men on board said that although there were bullets and cannonballs all around, Harridan was as calm as could be. It was as if nothing more than a shower of snowflakes was taking place. <laughs> so this was a, he was a cool character. And I live in Marblehead. I'm talking to you from Marblehead, Massachusetts. Salem, Massachusetts is right next door. And his burial plot is over there. And I visited it. And he's got a tombstone. Unfortunately, it's a slate tombstone mm -hmm. that has been destroyed by the elements. So you barely can read his name anymore. But he deserves more than that. <laughs> that fascinating. A absolutely fascinating. Yeah. I mean, uh, clearly a, a significant player in arguably the the most important war of the country yes wow all right so <laughs> let's pivot back you first started bumping into privateers in some of the earlier books you did yeah and um was it black flags blue waters you mentioned yeah yeah black flags blue waters had a number of privateers that were just privateers in name and they were really pirates and then the other thing is that a lot of privateers that were legitimate privateers at the end of a war when the letters of mark were withdrawn they were out of work and uh, after the war of the spanish succession which ended in 1713 thousands and thousands of pri british uh, privateersmen were suddenly out of work at a time that britain was going through a little bit of a depression economic depression so a lot of them such as blackbeard we think decided, hey, I'm in the Caribbean. I've got these skills. I know how to attack ships. Why don't I become a pirate? So there's, there, is the, the, there is a clear history of a lot of former privateers once the war concludes 
taking their skills and turning them towards piracy. I have to tell you that what that is reminding me of is the fact that we uh, supported Osama bin Laden in Afghanistan when they were fighting the Russians. And then he, he turned around and uh, we got a taste of it ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what would happen to these privateers if the British Navy got hold of them? Oh, that's that was one of the hardest chapters in the book to write. Basically, if you were an American privateersman and the British captured you, the British hated privateersmen more than they hated Continental Army men and Continental Navy, because those were sort of more legitimate in their eyes. Not really, because we were all rebels, but right. they viewed privateersmen as just out and out pirates. And they treated, they, they threatened to hang them, but they didn't hang any of them. But what they did was almost worse. Uh, they were thrown into prisons in England and onto prison ships in the Oof. colonies, and most uh, especially the prison ships off of New York City in Wallabout Bay, which is right near Brooklyn today. So the, the prisons in England, Mill and Fortin Prison, only held about 3,000 men, most of them privateersmen during the revolution. And it wasn't such a bad place. I mean, the death rate was about 3 to 6%, which is on par with other prisons during this era. I mean, it wasn't cushy living, but it wasn't horrific. However, if you got put on one of the prison ships, and the most famous of them was the Jersey, a former 64-gun mm. uh, British warship that was basically moored in the mud in Wallabout Bay in about five or six feet of water. It was just wedged into the mud, maybe a little more water than that. But anyway, this, this ship held between eight and 1,200 men at any oh. one time below decks. Basically, every day, uh, six to 12 people would die. There was dysentery, uh, fevers, starvation, uh, just every disease you could imagine. And the food was absolutely horrific. And every day, every morning, the uh, soldiers up top who were guarding the prisoners would call down the hatchway and say, rebels, bring up your dead. And that's when the six to 12 dead men would be taken up to the main deck and then they'd be put on boats and rowed just a short distance away to be buried along the banks of the beach and whenever there was a storm a lot of times those graves those uh, sort of not very well done graves would release their contents and you would see this grisly rack line of death and there'd be bodies that would just fall into the water as the sand got ripped away so it was absolutely horrible place to be and the recollections of people who who survived were uh were just scary to read but something like 90 or 95 percent of the men who were on these prison ships died and most of them were privateersmen on the jersey alone they estimate that 11,500 men died uh oh, wow. just almost unbearable misery the descriptions one of the description that, that grossed me out is with when you get to the uh, ladder to go up to the main deck at night men would defecate around that ladder and one of the descriptions said there'd be three or four feet of feces surrounding the ladder every morning and think oh about the food the food was horrible to begin with i mean uh, meat during this era suffered mightily even when you weren't at war but the way that they cook the meat was particularly horrific they had these big copper cauldrons on the main deck and they would siphon up salt water from right around the ship 
and that water was very foul to begin with, they throw the meat in, boil the meat, the salt water would react with the copper, so you'd get copper going into solution. So the men would be basically be eating rotten, maggoty meat that's been cooked that is also dosed with heavy metals. Oh my God. It just was it just was horrible. That chapter in the American Revolution, sort of like Andersonville and during the Civil War. And a lot of people don't remember that. There is a monument in New York City to all the people who died on the prison ships. But beyond that, just like privateering in general, I think very few people really know about this part of the American Revolution. You're listening to Eric J. Dolan, the author of Rebels at Sea, Privateering in the American Revolution. Eric, uh, some final thoughts as we get ready to wind up. <laughs> final thoughts. Well, you know, I... <laughs> yeah, different from the last ones. <laughs> <laughs> I came, I mean, final thoughts. I, I came into this book, as I said, not knowing a lot about privateering. And after having researched and written the book, I have gained a lot of respect for all of the people, individuals, mainly men who fought on behalf of the colonies to become a new nation. But I am particularly, I, I gained a lot of respect for these privateersmen, uh, the accounts that I have in the book. When you go to sea, even during times of peace, it's a dangerous thing during the 1700s. A storm could sink your ship. You could founder on a reef. You could knock into pirates, perhaps. But just imagine leaving port during war on a 70-foot vessel, maybe with 16 cannons and 100 guys crowded together on this ship. And you're going out intentionally to confront British ships. Now, mainly British merchant ships. We have to remember, British merchant ships at this time were also heavily armed. Some of them were like mini frigates uh, because the seas have always been dangerous and merchant ships and fishing ships almost always had some kind of armaments. But during the war, they just added more uh, you know, openings in the bulwarks and they added more cannons. So it was a very dangerous occupation and you weren't always guaranteed to get a good prize or multiple prizes. Sometimes you went out and cruised for three or four months, came back and had zip. So it, it just it was an amazing story for me. And my final thought, I wouldn't be a good author if I didn't say this. Please read the book. I think you'll enjoy it. It'll be a fun book to read. <laughs> it, it sounds like it. Where can people find it? Well, they can find it in any bookstore. I mean, if they don't have it in the bookstore or online, they can easily order it. And I, I, I'm going to give a plug for my website for a specific reason. My website is myname.com. So it's Eric J. Dolan, E-R-I-C-J-A-Y-D-O-L-I-N.com. And if you go there, you can read the introductory chapter to Rebels at Sea. So you can see if you even like the what the book looks like it's going to be about. And also I have the introductory chapters to all 15 other books that I have uh, written on a whole variety of topics. And there's also a list of the talks I'm giving. I usually give a lot of somewhere between 30 and 40 talks on each book in the months right after the book comes out. So uh, take a look at that and uh, give the book a try. Well, we will put up ericjdolan.com right up with the podcast when people uh, link to listen and definitely push people your way. I think I mean, this has been fascinating. And so uh, I imagine we'll get a lot of uh, fun reaction to what they've heard today. So Eric, thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. It's a pleasure. 
For Radio Free Galisteo, I'm John Shannon.